future generation acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Education opens doors. It enables social autonomy. It enables physical autonomy um, in, in particular ways and that sense of agency. That's Wendy McCarthy, one of Australia's most influential women. So for more than 50 years, Wendy has been at the forefront of feminism, corporate and public life in Australia. Her trailblazing advocacy has truly shaped this country. For example, and I love this example, if your dad was at your birth, you can thank Wendy because back in the 1960s, she fought for the rights of dads to be at their child's birth. She's also fought for equal pay for women, affordable childcare, access to contraception and abortion law reform. In fact, in 1972, she famously risked prosecution by taking out a full page ad announcing she'd had an illegal abortion. So Wendy, is not just an incredible change maker. She's an educator, author, mother, business owner, board member, university chancellor, and was deputy chair of the ABC. She's also a wonderful mentor to countless women, including myself. Wendy, welcome. I'm really delighted to be with you today. I'm so delighted to be back talking to you professionally as well as personally. Thank you. It's so hard for me to introduce you because over the time that I've known you, what, nigh on 20 years, you know, your life and your career have, have really changed. How would you describe yourself? How do you fill in that form at the airport? Um, mostly I put company director because nobody knows what that is and it's an all-encompassing term. And if I put feminist activist, I may not get through the um, border controls. I'm tempted at times to do other things, but usually I do that. And and the other thing I did um, was engage citizen. I put that down once and a bloke walked and he said, that's a good thing. I said, yes, it is a lot of fun too. I love that. Thank you. So I'm going to go on to a question that I, I like to ask everyone. Um, the podcast is called Twofold because at Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We want to get the best investment returns for our shareholders, but we also really want to get the best social outcomes for young Australians. And we do this by investing in not-for-profits, focusing on supporting mental health and youth at risk. Wendy, please tell us, what are your two driving purposes now? I think the education and leadership of women has been a profoundly important part of my life. And it remains that. And a part of that now which is a two, part of the twofold story, is the resurrection of public education. I am deeply concerned that our public education system is not flourishing. Um, and I think, though, that the other thing that I would include in the education and leadership of women is the women's health and the right to reproductive rights. So they're the two things that I care about most passionately, But because you can't be an effective adult woman without reproductive rights and a good education. We'll come to both of those later. But earlier this year, you published a memoir. In fact, it's your second memoir, and it's called Don't Be Too Polite Girls. So why did you choose that title? And what does it mean to you? 
Choosing a book title is agonising, Caroline. People think you choose it before you write it, but mostly you don't. And I had 18 working titles. And in those titles, I'd kept, I'd kept trialling it with people and i go, oh, no. And then I went back to what I did the first time and remembered Doris Lessing's advice that she said you always go back to the music of the time and you think about the music and what mattered to you from that music and that's where you find your titles. So I went back to 1968 when I started an activist life because Don't Be Too Polite Girls really is about life after 60 in the activist life as well as the years leading to it. So a young woman called Glenn Tomasetti, very beautiful, very well-educated Melbourne woman and a singer, re-lyricised, um, rewrote the lyrics, maybe a better way to say it, for an old shearing ballad called Down Among the Wool Boys. And I remember the tune and I remember the words of that and she wrote it for the equal pay case, said, don't be too polite, girls, show a little fight and make sure people know what you're worth. And I thought, that's the book I want to write. I want, oh, that's the title for my book. And then I got in touch with the family and I found out a lot more about her. I'd heard her sing. Um, she was a folk singer with Margaret Roadnight. And in a sense, if I Am Woman hadn't come along, it probably could have been, would have been the feminist anthem. But it was certainly one of them in the late 60s. The title made me think about Grace Tame and the criticism that she has copped when she met Scott Morrison and she didn't smile. Grace responded by saying that the abuse culture is dependent on submissive smiles. In other words, it's dependent on politeness. I know you advised Grace, as well as Chantal Contos, the founder of Teach Us Consent. What parallels do you see between your history and the activism that's taking place now? Oh, I think they're slipping inside my shoes and the shoes of my generation. And and I think they'll probably move away a bit from a business focus. And I think over the years, you know, my, my focus was not-for-profit um, and for purpose before we used those terms. And then you, you're a loser if you couldn't do something in business. And I'd always like business anyway. So for me, I wanted to try all of that. But for someone like Grace and those young women, they're looking for examples of that. And the thing I've said to some of my peer group who are quite disapproving and thought Grace was rude is that it wasn't compulsory to make nice. She was an Australian for the year, of the year. She had a commitment in that role to go to um, Government House or Prime Minister's residence and be honoured for that and on the completion of that role. So she went, she got dressed beautifully, she spoke beautifully when she had to, but she didn't pretend that she was making nice. And I thought that was admirable, that you can't gloss over something as grotesque that happened to her and that she talked about all year and pretend that it was all over and it was just a bit of a party. And I think I've persuaded most people that that's a reasonable view. You had this famously equal partnership with your late husband, Gordon, and, and, and I saw that. Um, you know, he was very much a man ahead of his time in many ways. And, it, and you've said previously that this really allowed you to soar in your career and public life. How important is it for male attitudes to change if we are going to reach equality in the workplace? And in what ways do they need to change? 
I think men have got to do it for themselves. They've got to do it because they believe in it and they want to. In Gordon's case, I think having spent the first three years of our lives away from all our family in, in, in an international life, we became very codependent and very curious about how other people structured marriages and relationships and so on. And really it meant that you threw in the rubbish bin half the attitudes that we grew up with about what was appropriate behaviour for a couple. And we were both curious about things. So Gordon was, you know, he was really interested in being there at the birth of our children and he wanted that participation and that closeness and intimacy. And he also assumed that as he'd met someone and married someone who had the same education as him, um, that we would both be contributing financially and intellectually to our lives together. And it does make me reflect on how important it is to find the right partner for life. And I think that, that we don't, we think that's a bit mushy, but it's actually not. If you can find someone who has equal expectations of himself or herself and his partner in that case, you have a basis for sharing. And I think that that's a wonderful basis for your children to grow up in a family where mum and dad do both things and they're pretty well interchangeable in their care and responsibility and their love. And I, you know, I wouldn't have swapped him for anyone. I remember actually when when I met you, you also wanted to check out my husband to make sure that it was a good pairing. So. That's right. I wanted to make sure you were marrying well. <laughs> and that would have been slightly different from maybe what your grandmother would have thought once upon a time, but not really. You're, you're marrying well when you're marrying someone you love and someone you think you can share a creative life with. And if you can have an equal life, whatever that means to you, that's good enough. I'm so in agreement with you there. So I've known and you. And you did get a good man. I, I, I so did. I'm very, very lucky. And then so is he. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've known you for more than 20 years. And the thing that I've always admired about you, besides your, your kindness, um, is your commitment to education. You know, we've worked together in the education space. We've run finance academies for public school students. And you've always said that no one can take your education away from you. You know, I'm interested in this more because the future generation, we work with youth at risk. Kids who are homeless have violence in their homes and, and, and many, other, many other issues. So how critical is education for, you know, the young, the young tomorrow if they're going to escape their childhood? I think my, my childhood was really happy most of the time. And, but people could read the story and think, you know, I had a father who was an alcoholic and who was menacing sometimes and he certainly wasn't, you know, real and central to our, our lives, but the pain of it was. But education takes you to another place, particularly reading. Everything, you know, if there's only one skill you learn from your education, if it's reading, you can get by, you can learn you can use a calculator now for most of the rest of things that you need in life. But I think that it's, you know, I do say it is the one thing you can't take away from, but education opens doors. It enables social autonomy. It enables physical autonomy um, in, in particular ways and that sense of agency. So for me, my life 
as it is now, would not have happened without access to public school scholarships, access to university scholarships, and the capacity to just earn enough as a young woman to be able to, on that scholarship, make my way basically from the age of 11, I was at, you know, I had scholarships to work. And and that gave me a status as well, you know. So Wendy's a clever girl. Not too clever, please, but, you know, clever enough. And I don't think we should ever underestimate how important it is. I was shocked, quite shocked last week when I read a piece by Matthias Cormann, uh, international finance person now, saying that Australia had too many people going to universities and there should be more in trades. I mean, for me, that is just such rubbish. Anyone who's able to go to university and and learns to research, synthesise, read more, think more, of course they should go and we should provide that. It doesn't mean you can't have a trade, but it means that you have a chance to learn to think independently and that best, the best nations are taught in democracies to think independently. And would that be the advice that you would give to to any child, whether they're vulnerable or in any situation, that they they should be getting a really good education? Yes, I think education's the only game in town, and that's the one we need to pursue and provide. And and public education, I think, is very challenged at the moment in Australia, and we need some correction. In my early life, we would have always chosen public ahead of private. And that's probably not the case now. And I think that secular education should be, a great secular education should be the central platform of every nation. You were chair of Headspace, the National Youth Mental Health Service. And that interests me because Future Generation Global has worked with them in the past. You know, we were a founder partner. And they're working to prevent mental ill health in young Australians, which is really where we are, what, what we're trying to do at the moment. You know, it's at a crisis point at the moment. Um, recently, statistics show that 40% of 16 to 24-year-olds have a mental health disorder, which is a horrifying increase. What are your views of the current mental health crisis and, and what do you think is causing it? I think I was shocked really when I um, took on the chairmanship for Headspace at how prevalent it was. I mean, I knew the numbers uh, and I know I knew in country towns of families who'd, you know, they'd gone they'd gone to every cake stall and so on to keep a kid who was vulnerable um, or born with a disability and a, and a mental disability housed and schooled and cared for and so on. But the 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 anxiety and the depression which are rampant are the really challenging spaces. And there is no doubt that at the 16 to 20 or 25-year-olds that Headspace looked at, if you have a chance of prevention before it goes really rogue, you're a long, long way ahead financially, but most of all for that individual. So early identification of kids with at-risk behaviour and at-risk confidence I don't have the answers, but I do know that when I used to see kids walking happily into a headspace street place for support and making it seem that's just like going to the dentist or going to the doctor because something's going wrong in your head, 
which is a very simple way to say it, but that it's acceptable because as soon as we accept those things, they get fixed. And you could go back through, you know, my stories with reproductive rights. I mean, abortion is now a health matter. It's not about backdoors and criminal behaviours and, you know, paying off cops and so on. You go to to the doctor for a whole lot of things and you go to the doctor to talk about abortion if that's what you're looking for. And so we need to get that suite of programs into Headspace. But the jury is still out, and it would be dishonest not to say that, about how effective it is because we haven't been doing it even half well for more than a decade or so. So when people say, oh, we're not getting enough for our investment, well, we're not sure about what the impact is and, and how, that might, how that might be measured effectively. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there were 90, 95 centres, Headspace centres when I left Headspace and about 10 when I went there. And but in public health provisions, policy changes too frequently often to get any sense of longevity about what's working. And I guess that's just something we have to live with. As you were talking before about abortion, I mean, you became known to a whole new generation of people because you did front that successful campaign to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales. Shortly after that, the US took a backward step by overturning Roe versus Wade. How did you feel about that decision? Well, you know, it was one of those things that was predicted by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who held on to the last moment and to stay on the Supreme Court to keep the numbers there. But I think there'd been a general sense in America since the 90s that with the rise of Hillary Clinton and the predictions and her success at international um, UN conferences and women's rights and human rights in Beijing in 1995, that the movement of American women into mainstream politics, mainstream business, and managing the issues around women's leadership and reproductive rights would just be incrementally progressive. It's turned out not to be. And it was a great shock when women with ambivalent views about abortion were appointed to the Supreme Court. And then when the first thing started happening and it was overturned, I think it was a terrible shock. But American women, I think, have lost their leadership position in the world as a result of this. They should have been watching. They should have been looking and working out different scenarios for women to get access to health care. I mean, we have some trouble in Australia at the moment with access, so I'm not speaking from a position of, you know, divine um, leadership on this matter, but we don't have persecution at a criminal level and enabled by the state. Now we're seeing in America a, a friend last week got picked up at a passport because she didn't want to go through the um, X-ray because she said she was pregnant. She got asked questions about pregnant, you know. What was the question about abortion? And you think, and a 10-year-old is suddenly pregnant. So there's going to be a lot of energy of women in the community, women's leadership, around how to get access to this because it's without going back to backyard abortions. And when we have backyard abortions, women die. Sad, isn't it? Very sad, really sad. And America invests a large amount of money in international aid and development. So anywhere where anyone there are any questions or discussions about family planning, 
they won't pay that money. Now there's like there's 70 million women live in poverty. Their children go with them and they're going to be more if they don't have access to termination of pregnancy. So there's been some really long-term impacts yes. that weren't really thought yes. about at the time. Yes, yes. You recently helped Karen Phelps and then Allegra Spender get elected into federal parliament. What lessons do you take from these forays into politics and how difficult is it to beat the system? How, how difficult is the system for women going into politics? Well, I think it's not that hard for women to get into politics. It's hard for women to be endorsed by political parties in leadership positions for relatively safe electorates. So when Karen ran in the by-election, she, she saw an opportunity and when people saw it and spoke to her about it and she agreed that was an opportunity and she was really interested and so she talked to me about it and I said, yeah, let's do it. And it was just a spontaneous decision, you know, really talking, walking up Mackay Street and what's the point? And suddenly off we went. So I've done a lot of work in the when the women's electoral lobby set up about in supporting politicians, and then I've done some local government stuff too. So I was quite aware of the system, but it was quite a long time since I'd done it. But it was the most exhilarating campaign, and there is that moment when people put their feet on the streets and their hands in their pocket when they've had enough with the existing regime, and that was what it was. People were enraged with Malcolm Turnbull. And they were not impressed by his successor and they came out for Karen. And the second time round, you know, she missed, but it was a very small margin. And, and to be fair, she won by a small margin. And I think with Allegra that what we're seeing is the result of the experience of Karen because she actually delivered in Parliament what she said she wanted to do, getting the children off Manus Island probably one of the first politicians to do that in such a short term. And Allegra now is flying and she's, you know, she, she's the true daughter of the feminist revolution really, you know, there and, and it goes in steps and stairs, but she's a force for good. Maybe she'll be first Australian woman for the next Prime Minister. Who knows? On top of your very visible work and activism, behind the scenes you've also guided countless women. I know I am one of the many, many women who have benefited from your counsel in my career and in my life generally. You founded one of the first mentoring systems for up-and-coming women. You're a founding member of Chief Executive Women. Why is it still so important for women to help other women? And how many women do you see not doing this? I think women enabling women is really important. And I think women who worry that they shouldn't do that are mostly applying a male gender lens over opportunities for promotion and leadership. And I'm mindful of a situation I know at the moment where a very senior man, very nice man, is mentoring a smart woman and a couple of boards have come up that she's quite interested in and he says, oh, you're not ready yet. Well, see, I wouldn't cop that. I would say I would be, and she took it and she thought, oh, well, I'm not ready yet. Well, she is ready to do that. And what happens is when people do that, whether they're male or female, you lose your confidence. You think, well, maybe I'm not ready. Well, when will I be ready? I've got a master's degree. I've worked for 20 years. I think I'm ready. I thought I was ready. Presumably somebody thought I was ready because I got on this program. 
So I don't know how to do that, but I do know how to get those, ask, help those women ask questions of in that scenario, saying, well, tell me, where, what am I lacking? Because instead of, because that's not true mentoring. You need to be questioned. You need to go back, not to be making nice. You're grateful for the person giving the time, but you want to know a little bit. You need more feedback than that. And I think women who don't support other women, basically, I just don't. I just don't want to know them really because it's and it's foolish. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't women you dislike, or men you dislike, or many like. But to say that you know. I think it shows a sort of anxiety and a terrible fear that another woman might get ahead of them. Well, I suppose men do that too. At a most recent CUW event and Sydney Community Fund, I saw you getting mobbed by young women. You know, what do you think it is about you that appeals so much to these young women? I think I'm safe. I think they can tell me things that maybe you can't tell their mothers or their grandmothers. And they're not, they're not necessarily of much consequence, but they are to them. Um, and they, and I, I remember, you know, for 10 years I wrote the Clio column on human relationships, my sex advisor years. And I think there, in the end I understood that there was no unaskable question. And sometimes it's easier to ask one of those questions to someone else. And I've got a track record that says that I'm trusted and I'm safe and I'll give you advice and, tr- and truth as I see it. And it might just be, you know, a 20-minute encounter, but if I say, well, I, you know, I think that's probably not a good idea or a good idea, they know they'll get an honest answer. And, and basically I don't lecture people and I do have fun. So you've just turned 81. You're looking back at your life. You've written your memoir. You know what are you most proud of? You know, and what what will your legacy be? My legacy will be at a very personal level. I've been a good wife and mum, and I've been a good person in my family. And there, are, you know, there are forty odd of us sitting down for Christmas this year. I I love families. I love clusters of people working, you know, together, robust as it gets at times. And I think the other thing that I'd I'd like to think that women have a bit more confidence in public life than they did when I started, and I'd like them to hang on to the idea that if someone offers you something and asks you if you'd like to go on a board and so on, that you say yes first and think about it later. Because managing risk in today's world is a crucial way of developing your life and your career. It's a risk when you set up a relationship with a partner. You know, it's not—it's a task and it has to be managed in a way with head and heart. And it's a risk when you take a job in an unknown place. But out of that risk comes growth and wisdom and hopefully lots of fun and results. So what's next, Wendy? That's a very interesting question, Caroline. I've been thinking about a couple of little things I might like to write. I won't write anything as big as that. Um, Don't be too polite, girls. But 
I need I know I need to keep healthy. I'm working on one board which is a for purpose, not for profit, and it's looking at aged care and disability in particular. And I do feel a sense of relief that I'm not one of them, but and I know how easily it could be, but I'm really distressed by the fact that there are so many women being thrown over the truck, really, out of the truck. They do no longer have a home. They're living in poverty. They've had minimal super because of their working lives. And they all had some status and a good life at some time, and they're just left out. And so for me, if I do what Susan Ryan always says we should do is just keep going, I want to make sure that those who have been just left out get back in to a life of respect. I guess my other thing is after a decade of, I think, very disrespectful discourse between women and government, I'm hoping that the next 10 years will be very respectful discourse between women and government because we need that to be safe and to have equity. And they're going quite well at the moment, so we all need to keep our eyes on them. Thank you very much, Wendy. Thank you for your time. And thank you for the opportunity. Lovely to see you in this role. Always. Thank you.